Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, as an elder myself and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert, Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, whom I consider a faithful brother, I have written this short letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Your sister church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I love the end of the letters in the New Testament, and I want to just encourage you. You have a just ample opportunity in front of you to disobey the Bible this morning. Because he just told you to greet one another with a holy kiss. Not in the days of coronavirus. You do not greet one another with a holy kiss. You give them a holy fist or elbow bump or a wave. Well, it's, um, it's been a great series in First Peter. We've been in this for all of 2020, and it's been really incredible. And, you know, one of the things I'm certain of is you guys just put extra, you know, jewels in your crown in heaven. Because showing up on Spring Forward Sunday to church, my goodness. So props to you if that's how the system works, which it's not, but you can think that for the moment being. So, so glad that you're here. Now, I just want to start off with a question. Is there anything for you that you just, you think you are inordinately good at? And it may be something that's kind of trivial. Like maybe for you, it's loading the dishwasher. Like is anybody just a master at loading the dishwasher? You can maximize efficiency. Everything gets clean. Or you understand like, what, the, what is the right rate? Like, what needs to be pre-rinsed when you put something in the dishwasher? Anybody a dishwasher master? Yes. Oh, yes, awesome. Oh, we have three in a row. My goodness. Oh, okay. Excellent, excellent. Oh, the, yeah, well, that's a thing. Um, anybody else have just, like, a trivial thing that they were super fired up about? Finding, oh, that's, that's a skill. Now, is Jesus involved in this parking spot? Like, you're like, dear, dear Lord, just open that up for me. As a healthy, able-bodied young man, I need the closest parking spot, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. That's good. Yes. Anybody else have a 
just a, a unique skill that maybe you just feel very passionate that you are awesome at? Driving, anybody? Driving? Anybody just think they're an amazing driver? Are you pointing to yourself? I am, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about pride today, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, driving is one of those things for me, I've just always felt like I haven't figured out and I don't understand why everybody else doesn't. Let me just pontificate for a moment. The left lane, what's it for? Fast, passing. Yes, that's it, right? Yes. Do you ever speed in a neighborhood? Yes. No. No. You, monsters. <laughs> no, you do not speed in a neighborhood. In Jersey, that's kind of complicated because like, the main streets all run through these neighborhoods. Like, you just find yourself, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm in a neighborhood now. Now, where I'm from, they just laid everything out on a grid in Oklahoma because it's nothing but space and they just keep expanding. Now here there are trees and houses and churches that have been here for 250 years. So when they built the roads, they were like, well, you can't put it through there. And so they started doing that. So for us, we get super fired up about some of the smallest things. And we, we all have our little things that we, maybe, maybe secretly or maybe openly, we think that we are just awesome at. And today, Peter wants to address us. In our humility, and obviously these sorts of things, maybe they're manifestations of sort of a deeper brokenness. As I've grown up, I used to think the driving thing, Courtney would tell me when we were driving, she's like, you know, you're not like the best driver in the world, like, I don't know, Mario Andretti or whoever you think you are. And I was like, you know, I'm pretty good at this. And I used to just think it was like a kind of a subtle manifestation of just something I thought was kind of cute. Now I'm starting to think it's like an actual personality flaw, so I'm trying to, to deal with my own brokenness. So if that's where you are today, welcome. Now, Peter begins the end of his letter. And the instructions at the, at the beginning of chapter 5, if you want to turn over there, are to leaders in the church. And Peter says, he says, Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades. Now, if you read throughout the Gospels, you see there are times where the people that followed Jesus most closely would have disagreements and arguments. And they would have disagreements and arguments about things like who was the greatest, who was the most important. And they were trying to sort of rank themselves because they had this, this, maybe it was misplaced, but they had an understanding that Jesus was going to inaugurate this kind of reign and rule. They thought that Jesus was the Messiah, the King of Israel that was to come. And so they wanted to be, you know, like in our, our, our current political system, many positions are winner take all. So if you work with the candidate who gets elected president, you might get a cushy job if you're working there and you're there from the beginning. And so you have these disagreements among the disciples. And they'd be arguing, James and John and Peter, about who was the greatest. And Jesus will say to them, you're misunderstanding the point. The way up is down. The way to become the greatest is to serve one another. And so Peter, as he's writing to the leaders in the church, and for me as the leader of, of this church, I, I read these words very slowly and very painfully this week. What does it mean for me to be an example? And to, to be an example of the way that Jesus loves and leads us, the way that the, the chief shepherd leads us. And I love this imagery of shepherding from Peter. We talked last week about the scene where Jesus meets Peter on the beach and he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And in that scene, Jesus is doing this profound work of restoration. You see, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus, in his brilliance, 
Peter, do you love me? And Jesus, as, as Peter says, yes, I love you. And he keeps saying, feed my lambs. And what Jesus is doing as the shepherd, as the, the shepherd, like Psalm 23, he walks with me even in the darkest valley. What Jesus is doing is he's saying to Peter, the kind of shepherding that I have been doing with you, now it is your call and your role to, to, to lead and to walk in this way. This image of shepherding for Peter was so powerful. It is how he understood what it meant to lead in the kingdom of God. And so Peter does this so subtly throughout this letter. He'll just insert, like he talks about a rock. And Peter's name means rock. Jesus changed his name. He said, no longer will you be called Simon Peter, but now you'll be called rock. And so Jesus, uh, Peter just does this so subtly throughout the letter, introducing themes from his own life with Jesus into the letter and inviting the congregation into this imagination. And so this morning, as we wrap up this series, I have a couple things I want to do. First of all, I, we're going we're gonna to tie a bow on this series by walking through this passage ever so swiftly, uh, as swiftly as I'm able. And then while we're doing that, uh, Joanna, you can put that slide on the screen. So we do have a, uh, we have a little bit, we're going to try to work this in as a, as a practice when it's appropriate uh, to do a little bit of question and response. Do you have that? Sorry, did I do that? Okay, cool. She can almost hear us, but not completely. Morse code. We need more. No. Awesome. Now, a couple things. Uh, I'm not just trying to get you to write my name. We're balling on a budget here. So that's the free plan. So they pick your name for you. So guess what? You get to write Ian Graham 636. I'm glad it's not 666. That worked out well. Um, so you can tell, if you have a question that sort of like this series has brought out, or you just kind of have a general question, uh, you can text those in. Uh, it'll be anonymous. We won't have the number and be like, oh, somebody from the 609 area code wants to know. Um, and we'll just kind of deal with those as much as we have time for at the end. And so uh, that'll be kind of as we move towards the end of our talk here. And this morning, I want to talk about humility and the kind of humility that Jesus is inviting us towards. Now, there's a uh, psychologist named Mark Leary and his, one of his associates named Chloe Banker. And they, they actually set out to study, like, what makes people humble? You know, humility is one of those interesting things. Like, if you were to say this morning, like, you know, I'm feeling more joyful lately. Like, I just feel like God is doing this work of joy in my life. Like, we would all rejoice with you, right? Like, it would be amazing. Like, I'm just feeling more loving lately. Like the church would be like, amen, like, awesome. I'm feeling more generous. Like we could all rejoice. Now, if you sat up and you said, I'm just, I'm feeling really humble these days. Like it's when that begins, right? It's just that moment of like, well, are, are you? And humility has this weird paradox to it, right? The moment you begin to claim it as something that you've grasped, the moment it seems that everybody else around you is like, I'm not so sure, right? And so Mark Leary and Chloe Banker, they set out to, to study and, and discover what is it that makes a person humble. And, and their hypothesis in this study, as they sort of uh, surveyed these leaders and people who had accomplished a lot, was that humility is characterized by the belief that no matter how great one's accomplishments are or how positive their characteristics may be, they do not feel entitled to special treatment as a person. Interesting. No matter what they've done, and you hear stories about this, like if you listen to stories about athletes or actors, the, the sort of people we hold in high esteem, you hear the stories about the people who like, you know, as an actor, they never emerge from their trailer except when it's one of their scenes and then they go back to, to live in their lavish luxury of a trailer, which is always very funny to me. 
in its own way. And then you hear the stories about the people who will work so hard to, to bring along young, young like up-and-coming people and to help them and to show them what it means to be a craftsperson. And so Mark Leary and Chloe Banker are saying, what, what is it that sort of drives this? And so this morning, as we talk about humility, we want to do what Peter did first and foremost. He looks to Jesus, the most humble man who ever lived. And Jesus could have probably said, hey, I'm, I'm really humble. In fact, he does say this. But here's the thing. Nobody's like, oh, you're not that humble. It's like, actually, I, I think he's right. I think he's telling the truth. So we look to Jesus. So Matthew verse, or chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. And this image of a yoke is like of oxen being saddled with, with a harness so that they can pull a cart or do their work. He says, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says in John chapter 10, he says the thief, meaning Satan, the enemy, the one that Peter will talk about later in this chapter. He says the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life to the full. And notice what he says here. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This verse for our church is kind of the, the focal point. We, we, Jesus has come that we might have life and life to the full. And, and I wanted to put in the second half of this, this I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Because the only way, the, the Jesus is showing us the only way to a sort of full life is, is by laying our lives down. We, and this is what Peter's talking about. He starts talking about, he says, don't worry about exalting yourself. Don't worry about building up your own kingdom. That's not the way. The way up is down. And Jesus embodies this in his life by laying his life down. He lays his life down in his life with the disciples and eventually on a cross. Paul writes of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. This is kind of a longer section of scripture. So I'm just going to invite you. Let's all take a deep breath. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Philippians chapter 2. He's talking to a church that for once he's pleased with. If you read Paul's letters, this is not a common occurrence. So there's a lot of joy in Philippians. But he says to them, they're still having problems. He says, therefore, if any of you, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others." In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being, notice this, notice, think about Mark Leary and Chloe Banker's assertion, that those who are humble manifest no matter what they've done, they don't think that they are worthy of special treatment. Now look at what Jesus has done. Who being in the very nature God, I mean, he could claim special treatment, I would suppose, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He didn't just come as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death and death 
of a criminal's execution on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, Jesus doesn't just call us to humility. Jesus never speaks a word that he does not live out. He is the word of God made flesh. And so he lives this out fully. And Peter invites us into this kind of humility as we focus on Jesus here this morning. And he says to his church, he says, in the same way, all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. And he says, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, in Peter's culture, people could distinguish themselves by what they wore. In the first century, you could tell somebody's status, their heritage, their relative level of wealth by what they were wearing. We talked about this when we talked about some of the instructions given to women in 1 Peter chapter 2. That they shouldn't adorn themselves in this way. And it wasn't because, it wasn't because you, you can't have nice things. It's because how are you setting yourself above other people by what you're wearing? And so Peter says to the whole church, to every single person, clothe yourselves with humility. That should be our garment. And I love this image of clothing. It's used throughout the New Testament. And it's this beautiful image because all of you, and we are appreciative of this, at some point this morning woke up and said, I'm going to get dressed this morning. Thank you. We appreciate that. And so for us, the act of putting something on, as, as unconscious as it may have been on a spring forward type of morning where you're just like, what's clean-ish? I'll wear that. That's fine. As unconscious as that may have been, you still chose and you made a, a, a physical action and a movement towards putting something on. And so Peter says, all of you in your dealings with one another, clothe yourself with humility. And again, Peter looks Peter looks to the example of Jesus because the, the word that he uses is similar to the word used of Jesus in John chapter 13. When it says that Jesus was sharing a meal with his disciples on the last night of his life. And he got up from the table and he took off his outer garment and he wrapped a towel around his waist. He aproned a towel around his waist and then he bent down at each one of their feet and he washed their feet. Jesus clothed himself humility, as Paul says, by taking the appearance of a slave. Jesus filled the roles of the least and the least desirable. And Peter says to us that all of us are to deal with one another in this way, serving one another. And then he says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, Peter's doing something interesting there. What we see throughout the scripture is that God gives grace to all. God gives grace to all. But, but to us who, who can't receive it, and we're going to talk through this in just a moment, if we're too blind or too proud to receive it, it doesn't feel like grace. It doesn't feel like something that God is giving a gift to us in. God gives grace to all, but only the humble receive it. We'll quote from the uh, church father, Basil, a couple times this morning. He has this great little sermon on humility. And in this sermon, he says, Humility often saves a sinner who has committed many transgressions. I think that's so beautiful. What does God require of us? What does he want from us? 
just to need him. We're going to talk through that in just a moment. But he says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So in some way, and this is scary, pride puts us in opposition to God. Now, I want to talk through just a couple of quick angles of pride here this morning. Uh, First is is something I'm calling self-righteous pride. Now, so if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not really sure, like, uh, you know, what, what's ordering the whole universe. Maybe you're not religious or you're, you're an atheist, however you would describe yourself. You're materialist. This kind of pride basically says that I am the measure of what's true and right and beautiful. I was listening to, anybody watch The Good Place, the show? Anybody a fan? I, it's such a good show, right? Like, some really good, no spoilers, no spoilers. <laughs> They're all dead. No. It's about heaven. I mean, I don't know. What do you want? I was listening to Michael Schur, who's one of the showrunners from The Good Place. And he was on a podcast with uh, David Chang of Momofuku, doing the Lord's work. We thank you. And uh, they were discussing, because David Chang grew up in this, like, really strict Presbyterian household. And, and so he's kind of walked away from a lot of that. But he's talking to Michael Schur, and he's just like, how did you get this show made? He's like, this is a show about philosophy and eternity. Like, th- this is not what's on CBS at 9 o'clock at night. Like, this is not a crime drama, right? Um, and so he's asking him all these questions. And, you know, Michael Schur's talking about the process that they've gone through to kind of, you know, they talk about things like Kant in, in the show, which if you're not familiar with Immanuel Kant, better for you. Uh, because, like, far be it for these brilliant people to be, like, decent writers at best. Um, but he, he talks about all these things. And it, David Chang basically asks him, he's like, he's like, in all of your research, in all of your study, what have you sort of, what, what have you synthesized? What have you put together? What's the point of life? And David Schur, like, responds, which is kind of the cultural response that we give. He's like, you just try as hard as you can to be a good person. And, like, I, I get that. I'm actually so sympathetic to that mentality. It says you just, you, you, you try with what you can to be a good person. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly sympathetic to that. But there's kind of this inherent arrogance in that. According to whose standard? Right? Like, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be true? Because like, for me, I could, I could make a pretty compelling argument that for me and my family to be good is just to live the best life that we have available to us, to be as upwardly mobile as we can, to make sure our kids have the access to the best things. Like That's good, right? In our society, that's being a good father and a good mother, a good parent, right? And so what does it mean to be good? And I think that's the question that still sits behind some of these assumptions. And so for this morning, you can kind of have that self-righteous pride that basically just says, well, I'm going to try to be a good person and I'm going to be the determiner of that good. Now, this shows up even worse for somebody who maybe, uh, maybe your heart is inclined towards God. Maybe you believe in God. Jesus shows us the poverty of this sort of self-righteous pride throughout his life. And in one occasion, he tells a story, a parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee. And this Pharisee has determined in his own self-righteousness that he is the measure of what it means to be a faithful follower of God. And he's praying in the temple, and he's praying to God, but then he all of a sudden, he looks to the side, and he sees a tax collector. Tax collectors were were the lowest and the worst in the society. Tax collectors collected taxes that kept the people of God enslaved. So you can imagine, like, every, you know, every six months, you, you, you go and you pay your taxes. 
And you're like, oh, this is the person who's like oppressing us and keeping us uh, down. So the tax collectors were not highly favored. And so this Pharisee, who again is so righteous, looks at the tax collector and he says, thank you, God, that I have not been made like that tax collector. And meanwhile, the tax collector, in that same moment, not focused on anybody else, but praying to God, says, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And friends, we see the poverty of this kind of self-righteous pride. Pride does this to us. It causes us not to focus on God, but to look at other people. Like, think about how this plays out in our culture. Like, politics is basically just projection of pride. I don't want to deal with the sin and the brokenness in my own life, so I'm going to look for somebody. It's like, oh, those people. They're the ones. And friends, this morning, our self-righteous pride is a call for us to to, to repent and to say to to the Lord, I don't want to be in opposition to you. Now, the second kind of pride I want to talk about this morning, and I think this one is much more subtle, is self-sufficient pride. You know, I don't know about you. I I think about this as kind of funny in in the days of coronavirus. Like my first response to this kind of virus as it began to pick up speed was not like, oh, Jesus, save us. Like, Lord, do your thing. It was like, Vaccine. Like, let's do the vaccine thing. Let's just, like, technology will save us. Eradicate this. And it sort of shows the self-sufficiency of our age. Like, to this point, we're like, there's no problem we can't solve, at least to some extent, right? But self-sufficient pride is this. You know you need God, but you still live your life as if he does not exist. Now, I love how in this passage on humility... Peter acknowledges the anxieties and the concerns and and the desperation that often comes in. And he's talking to the church. He's saying, he says to the church, he says, cast all of your cares and your anxieties upon him. And friends, I know anxiety is sort of a freighted word in our our, uh, culture, in our lexicon. Peter's not exactly using it in the way that we often use it. But the point of it, regardless of the way that he's saying it, is this, that God cares for you. Earlier before, Peter describes Jesus as the chief shepherd, the one who walks with us in the darkest valley. And friends, so often our self-sufficient pride is from a lack of understanding this very fact that God loves you and he cares for you. That he's not saying, hey, will you figure this out on your own and then get back to me? This is so important. He cares for you. He is with you. He is walking with you. He is the shepherd who lays down his life so that he can be with you. And our self-sufficiency so often tells us that we can solve it, that we can figure it out, that we are somehow sufficient in our own strength. And this is what grace is, friends, is God drawing near to us in our weakness. And so this morning, I want to put as a simple antithesis to pride, Before you this morning, Jesus says in the Gospels, as he's asked, what are the greatest commandments? And Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so I just want to simply turn that definition slightly and and posit to you that humility for us this morning is simply to need God and to need others. So what is the antithesis of pride? To need God. Peter tells us in those exact words, he says, cast all of your cares upon him. And, and the, the image of, is simply like throwing all your stuff on him. 
Like whatever you're carrying around, as Jesus says, I am, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying, whatever you're carrying, you don't need to carry it. Jesus will carry it for you. Throw it all on him. Cast all of your cares, your anxieties, your concerns upon him. Basil says, and this surest salvation, the healing of his wound, the way of return to his beginning is to be humble. Not to think that he can ever of himself put on the cloak of glory, but that he must seek it from God. And friends, for us this morning, humility, needing God, is available to us as soon as we begin to realize, hey God, I need you. We find that God is there waiting, that he is there in our midst. And the second, I think, is like it. How do we remain humble? Well, you need other people. You know, Jesus talks about, uh, you know, as he designs what it means to live in the kingdom of God, he gathers disciples around him. He gathers a community around him. And then Jesus' plan for reaching the world is simply communities like this one, planted all around the world that are bearing witness to the fact that we need to walk together in order to bear witness to the kingdom of God. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, he says, Love one another, for love covers over a multitude of sins. St. Paul will say, bear one another's burdens. And friends, this morning, humility often is opening up our lives to other people. Not shielding ourselves and friends, I know for many of us, you, you've been hurt. And many of you have been hurt in church contexts. I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. But friends, this morning, I want to invite you simply to see that we can't live this life following Jesus in the way of Jesus on our own. And Basil gives us an image of what it means to live humbly. And I think this is really beautiful. He says, in everything, refrain from seeking to appear important. Be a help to your friends. Kind to the ones who live with you. Gentle to your servant. I don't have one of those. Patient with those who are troublesome. Loving towards the lowly. Comforting to those in trouble. Visiting those in affliction. A word, perhaps, for us. Never despising anyone. Gracious in friendship. Cheerful in answering others. Courteous, approachable to everyone. Never speaking your own praises. Not getting others to speak them. That's interesting. Never taking part in unbecoming conversation and concealing where you may whatever gifts you may possess. Friends, humility for us this morning is learning to need God, that we need an outlet, that we need a a grace for all of our cares and our anxieties. And it's also to see that the way that he often shows up in our life is not by parting the clouds and, and doing this amazing thing in your bedroom when you're praying at night. That, that happens. But more often it's a person. More often it's a person that's been praying with you. More often it's a person that's been walking alongside you that's going to be the embodiment of Jesus' hands and feet to you in your life. And this is why we need to be this kind of church that walks with one another, that seeks out the needs of other people, that looks and sees them. So humility for us this morning is the willingness to need God and to need others. So friends, Peter goes on and he says, resist the devil. He's a roaring lion. And there's a lot more to unpack there, but I do want to get to a couple questions. But what he's saying is that our call, our shield in this battle that we've been indoctrinated into 
is, is exactly this. Not that we are awesome, not that we have strength in and of ourselves, but that we would need God and that we would stick together. That we would need each other. And pride says the opposite of that. Pride says, I don't need you to God. And pride says, I you know, don't really want to open my life up to other people. I want to stay guarded. I want to stay in control of the situation. And for all of us in here, we know that love is a relinquishing of control. Love is a step that, makes, uh, that you make towards somebody else that invites vulnerability, that invites brokenness, that invites situations to go beyond our planning and our comprehension. So this morning, can we be a people who need God and who truly need one another? And as we sort of live into this moment that we find the, the church in America in right now, Jesus says that we will be known by the world by our love for one another. And so friends, if we have pride this morning, if we're dealing with the sort of pride of self-righteousness or self-sufficiency, would you just lay it down? Peter says, cast all your cares upon him. Like that's one that's on the list because it's all things. Would you just let God Come in and show you that you don't have to carry these things on your own. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, you are our good shepherd. God, you've lived out this way in this life. God, you've shown us what it means to be a, a person who is humble, God. God, of our own accord, of our own designs, Lord, we cannot live humbly, God, but you, by your Spirit, by the fruit of the beauty of a relationship with you, God, we become the kind of people who look not to our own needs, but to the needs of others. And so, God, this morning, Lord, where there is pride, God, where there are things that we have uh, taken up and held on to, where there are things that we have used to shield ourselves, Lord Jesus, Lord, would you help us just to humbly lay them down? God, that to come to you is to come to a cross. God, a cross where you laid down your life for the sake of the world. God, where you humbly died, giving of yourself, shedding your blood, so that we might live with you and be known by you. And so Jesus... Give us grace to repent, God. Give us grace to lay down our pride and to walk in humility. Lord God, we love you. It's your honor we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so uh, for the last 10 or so minutes, um, we have a couple of questions here. Again, I, I was going to say this earlier, but if we... If we don't have any questions, we just go to lunch earlier, so it kind of works in everybody's favor. Um, so we will, what we'll do kind of for the end of our gathering here is we'll take a couple questions. Um, I've got the screen up in front of me, and then we will come to the table, and we'll sing in response, and then we will go about our way. Um, so the first question that we have here, so can we be proud of our humility or proud of our faith? That's, that's an interesting question. So can we, I, I think we sort of have laid out, like, what does it look like to be proud of your humility? Um, at some level, I guess anything you're sort of proud of, you're going to kind of give voice to. And at some level, like, it's, it's one of those things culturally, like, uh, you know, we kind of talked about it. If you say, I'm very humble, like, it's going to be kind of a weird interaction for you and people. <laughs> So maybe like internally you can be proud of your humility, but I think at that point, you know, what we find is that the people who walk most closely with Jesus 
And whether this be the, the, the desert fathers, uh, the fathers of the church, whether this be uh, people in the uh, New Testament, like Paul refers to himself as the, the, the chief, the protos, the foremost of all sinners. And so it, it would seem that as we draw near to God, and this, there's a paradox here, and it's a beautiful paradox. It's not that God is saying, like, look how terrible you are as you draw closer to him. I just think as you get closer to light and to beauty that, that Jesus sort of embodies, you're sort of more aware of your own brokenness. You know, you kind of like Isaiah, like, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I'm from a people of unclean lips. And, and what we see as Christians, often we consider our lives in terms of individuality, Right? But, but the New Testament has this collective mindset. And so we, we see this now. This, this narrative has started to unfold in our culture, which I think, I think is really powerful, of systemic sin. And the Bible has language for that. The Bible is talking about, hey, you were born into a story that far preceded you. That generational sin is a part of your life. And so how do we begin as people to be confessional, not only for our own brokenness, but for the brokenness of our world. Like we meet right now, like just, just as example, like we, we're in Princeton right now. Much, much of Princeton, much of the wealth of the university, much of the wealth of this town was built on the back of slaves. Now here's the thing. Nobody in here, not a single one of you, had any part in that. But as we sort of talk about that, is it something that we can sort of confess and lament? And so I think about pride and I think about humility. Like what we see so often is that for us as the people of God, we're a confessional people. And we bear the sins of our culture. We bear the sins of the place that we live. And, and, and so I think in these kinds of moments, like, like, yeah, if you're starting to feel pretty good about yourself, well, just lift up your eyes and look around. You can start to see some brokenness that you can take some, some sense of responsibility for and share the weight of. So... Um, yeah, I don't know if you can be proud of your humility. Um, I'm sure I've tried. I'm certain of that, but uh, it's very good. So, but I think, I think we as a people have to bear the collective sins of our culture, too. Yes. Oh, maybe we have an answer, too. <laughs> First Peter, we got a verse quoting. First Peter 3, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Yes and amen. Uh, that's a great answer to that as far as what Peter is is determining for pride and humility. Um, all right, so we're going to have another couple seconds here. If we have any other questions, we'll kind of go from there. Oh. In terms of, like, communities that Ecclesia could be of service to mm-hmm. in this way, if it's, you know, to love God and to serve others, need others, like, what groups do you see having a need that we could fill right around yeah, I mean, so a lot of it's the work that we, we've started to undertake. Um, you know, you kind of have a changing neighborhood that's happening right here. So where we're meeting right now, this is the Paul Robeson Center. Uh, the Jackson neighborhood was historically uh, a black neighborhood. It was historically a neighborhood that was, you know, kind of a dividing line in Princeton. And now a lot of this is, is changing over. There's a lot of undocumented people in our midst. And so I, I think right now, I just think of the very immediate future. So has anybody been to Costco recently? Seen the shelves? Yeah. Are people freaking out? There's no toilet paper, right? <laughs> I like how people have their priorities straight. This is good. But I think, like, so you start to think of, like, a lot of the things that we distribute on a weekly basis at a food pantry that we serve are, are non-perishable items. Uh, things that a lot of people, as they're sort of responding to the, the specter of coronavirus, are stocking up on. 
And so I think about what are the immediate needs? Well, like if, if this virus becomes like what some people think it might, like we're, we have a call as a community to look to the needs of our neighbors, not just simply stockpile our own basements and you know, sort of fortresses, but to say, okay, there's people here who on a good week, when everything's going great, are still insecure in where their food is coming from. And so how much will that be exacerbated by you know, sort of breakdown in supply chains and those kinds of things? And so I, I, think it's, I think it's leaning in. I think it's asking questions. I think so much of that. But I think it's, it's, it, it's sort of the consistency of presence, too. And this is what Jesus embodies so well. Like, Jesus lived for 30 years, and nobody knew. Like God was just walking the streets. And at some point, you know, he goes to John the Baptist, and he says, okay, it's time. But my goodness, like... How patient is God? How subtle is God? And we as the church have to be neighborly in the way of Jesus. And so I, I think, yeah, I think some of these things may be converging where it's going to be a call to, be, uh, to live in that way. All right, we've got some more questions. All right, last week you said that Peter does not attribute the trials the persecuted church is undergoing in Christ to God. But then in verse 19, it talks about those. Verse 19. Sorry, I'm still working on getting the Bible memorized. Uh, yes, so verse 19 that they reference, which is very good. Let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator. So just a little bit of backstory. Last week we talked about how a lot of times Jesus does not initiate the, t- the, the, the pain and the suffering of our lives. Um, it, it, he doesn't like say, okay, like this person, maybe they're feeling pretty good about their humility. Time for a test. Like, I don't think that's what God is doing. And then, uh, you know, Peter sort of talks about these tests, this fiery ordeal that you're undergoing. Um, and then I, I sort of made the comment that, that a lot of times things kind of happen in our lives that are just a part of the, the, the brokenness of living in a broken world. Um, and then, you know, this verse would seem to suggest suffering according to God's will. And, and I don't think that, again, I don't think that dictates necessarily that God is the one who's originating the suffering. But I think what Peter is describing here in chapter 4 is suffering as a Christian. And so suffering as a Christian is, is suffering according to God's will in that it's participating, as Peter says, in the sufferings of Jesus. And so, again, I think we have this like, mentality often that sort of everything that happens is a manifestation of God's will. And that's pantheism. Essentially, right? Like if everything that, that, that happens, like if, you know, I make a decision and, you know, or, or a parking spot opens up. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Nothing wrong with giving Jesus credit for that, right? But at some level, like if every wind that blows is a manifestation of God's will, then it's, it's sort of this uh, understanding of the world that, you know, I, I think that doesn't quite lend itself to what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5. The devil is a roaring lion prowling around, seeking whom he may devour, that we live in a world that is in conflict, a world at war. And so I think there's multiple things going on there. I think some trials come from God, uh, certainly. I, I think God sometimes will have to move the church back to being a people who are selfless, move the church back to being a people who are looking at the needs of their neighbors. The church can become very introspective, uh, but I think he does this collectively. But I think also that we feel this ache and this, this sort of pain of the fact that we live in a world that's in conflict and there are spiritual forces, as Peter says in, in 1 Peter 5, that are seeking to undermine our life with God, that seeking whom they may devour. And so I think it's a, I think it's a both and. And uh, I know that frustrates some people, but 
Yeah, I think it has a little bit of both in there. All right, I think we've got time for one more, then we'll move to the table. Yeah, Bryson. Uh, the role of obedience and living a holy life. Yeah, we often shy away from the idea of having like to submit our like our lives and yet we see Jesus commanding us towards certain things and away from certain things. Yeah, and, and and truly, like I mean, we just talked about the Pharisees. You know, they were they were pretty intent upon living obedient lives. You know, they had sort of established themselves as a standard. I'm thinking about this in the context of the first chapter of Peter. Yeah. Where where they quote from the Old Testament, "Be holy as I am." Yeah, which is a high bar. And so I, I think that, and to quote earlier from the first chapter of Peter, it says, "You've been giving new birth into a living hope." And so when I think of a holy life, and obviously I'm going to truncate so much of this, but what it means to live a holy life is to live a life that has been that has been made anew by God, that longs for God's presence, and that that invites it in. You know, again, we we talk about pursuing God and all that kind of stuff. The reality is, is that God pursues us. He is relentless in Him coming to us. And often what we have to do is simply pay attention and say, God, I'm here. You know, I'm, I'm willing to respond to what you're doing right now. I'm willing to respond to what you're trying to do in my heart. I'm willing to pay attention to that. And I'm also willing to respond to what you're doing missionally in the world. And so I, I, just to like very quickly answer that one, I would say, you know, does your heart long for God? And like, that's the beginning of holiness. Now, so many of us in here, if we went and pulled around Christians that have been walking with Jesus for 20 years, you may not struggle with the same things that you've struggled with before. But, but, but you still feel this ache of like sinfulness and, and regret and all those sorts of things in your life. So it's not about God slowly and progressively removing stuff from your life and then saying like, oh, look, now you're holy. Like sanctification is living life with Jesus. And, and, and I think that's the heart of it, because we can beat ourselves up so much about like, man, I, I feel like I'm still struggling with this one thing, and it's just been so long. Maybe God's sick of listening to me. Maybe God's sick of me saying I'm sorry. And I, I don't think so. I, I think that God is empowering us to live a life for Him. But, but at the same time, like our sanctification in the moment, when sanctification is a, like a very fancy word for uh, being made holy, being sanctified, uh, is, is truly just longing for Jesus and inviting him into our presence. And I, I think if we started there, we'd be amazed at the transformation that would happen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.